Welcome back to Story Collider's Stories of COVID-19 series. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and this is part one of episode nine on the theme of clarity. During this pandemic, we've all been forced to stop, take a look around, evaluate where we're at. Many of us have had to confront problems that normally would be brushed under the rug, or maybe we've realized how much we really do value relationships and routines that we used to take for granted. In part one of this episode, we'll hear our first story on this topic, and then we'll talk to infectious diseases doctor and recent Story Collider storyteller, Mati Hlachwayo Davis. Our first story is from Gastor Almonte, who is an award-winning stand-up comedian and senior producer for Story Collider. It was recorded in his home in East New York, New York. It was already awkward before we got to the oatmeal. You know, everybody was sitting down in the living room. We just got home from the hospital and nobody knew what to say. You know, my parents, they were mad at me because they thought it was my fault because it's always your fault when you're the oldest kid in the family. You know, my my pop still thinks it's my fault that Obama's not president just because I was the only person crazy enough to try to explain to him why he can't run a third time. My kids, they were just happy to see me because I just spent six days in the hospital. And even though it turns out I didn't have COVID, so many people were showing up with this that they were overwhelmed. So they weren't letting anybody have guests just to minimize the risk. And my wife, she was just trying to be optimistic. She felt the tension in the room. She was trying to lift everybody's spirits. So she was like, Gastor, we're going to make some changes. Everybody's going to eat healthy. I'm so excited. I found this great recipe for oatmeal. We're going to put cinnamon and blueberries in it. Gastor, you're going to love it. Nobody loves oatmeal. Nobody even likes oatmeal. And you can't love something if you don't like it at one time. You know, you can't convince me that somebody loves oatmeal. You know, I challenge you, find that Zagat review. Oh, yeah, yo, you got to go to Morton's Great Steak, but have the chef's oatmeal to die for. It doesn't exist. Nobody talks like that about oatmeal. I'll even go this far. I don't love oatmeal, but I love what it does for you. I love that it keeps my grandma regular, but love oatmeal itself? Impossible. And it's nonsense like that. That's why I don't trust doctors. I don't trust anybody who wears a long coat the whole time they're at work. You know what I mean? Frankenstein, Carmen San Diego, Guy Fieri, chef coats, lab coats, medical coats, trench coats, all the same thing. But I got to say, they had some valid concerns. You know, I, I got to the hospital and, you know, they said that you know, I almost died. Um, they told me that, uh, they told me that for a guy, your blood sugar is supposed to be like from a hundred to 140. And when I showed up at the hospital, it was at 660 and I, I couldn't even remember. I couldn't remember what that felt like. I, I only know what happened because Gabby told me, but that whole trip to the hospital, that whole morning is so vague and, and, and gray in, in my memory. I, I, I don't know what that experience was. So while I understand 
my family's concern. I didn't feel it. I just know that I enjoy what food does. I enjoy coming together and having something that is almost like an art when it's done at its best and enjoying it with my crew and, and talking about it. Nobody does that with oatmeal. Oatmeal is such a lonely food. Nobody is like, yo, oatmeal Sundays. Nobody gets together for oatmeal with the posse. Nobody's like, yo, I want the squad oatmeal in my crib. Be Yo, we got to come over. My man got extra oatmeal. It doesn't happen. There's no, there's no gatherings over oatmeal. So... The more that she described it, the less I wanted it. You know, she's like, yeah, I got chai seeds and blueberries. I'm going to put some, you know, vanilla Greek yogurt on it. Yeah, so it's going to be great. And I was just getting frustrated listening to this. Finally, I just stood up. I was like, Gabby, I'm not doing that shit. And I walked out of the apartment. I called up Katarina, it's my favorite pizzeria, and I placed what can only be described as the most aggressive order ever. You know, like I'm sure Katarina's has had customers call them up cursing before if something's gone wrong with the order. I'm pretty sure this was the first time somebody cursed while placing the order. You know, I was like, yo, listen, I don't want cheese. I want extra fucking cheese. You know, I didn't want pepperoni. I want pepperoni all over that shit. Get in here soon. Hung up the phone. Went back inside and I could feel the tension in the room. Nobody was talking. Everyone was just staring at me as I walked back to my seat. Finally, my son Aiden looks at me and he's like, "Uh, so dad, uh, does this mean you're going to get needles? Needles? Oh. How did I forget about the needles? Yes, I'm going to get needles, little man. Thanks for asking. How many? I'm glad to let you know. I'm going to get four needles every day, Aiden. I got to take one shot for base level insulin, and I got to take three shots, one with every meal for fast-acting insulin, just in case something goes wrong. So, yes, Aiden, I'm going to be taking shots every day. That means I'm going to be taking needles every day. And he looks at me and he stands up and he goes over to the fridge and rolls up his shirt. And he's like, all right, so let's take our shots. I'm like, what are you talking about, little man? And he's like, well, mom said that we're going to eat differently because if we eat better, you'll eat better. And that means you'll be around longer. So whatever you eat, we're going to eat. So if you get needles... We get needles. So let's take the shots. And me and my dad, we just started laughing. <laughs> and I got up and I hugged my son. And uh, I was like, nah, little man, you don't got to worry about that. Uh, that's just something I got to do. But, you know, that that's not for everybody. He's like, okay. He's like, well, you know, we could still eat the oatmeal. And I was like, nah, man, you don't, you just got to eat better. You don't got to eat oatmeal just because I'm eating oatmeal. He's like, oh, thank God, because that would have been so much worse than the needles. (laughs) And uh, 
was like, yeah, man, I agree. I, I wouldn't put you through that brown sludge unless I had to, man. And we sit down and we just all hang out and we talk. We have some games playing in the background, watching reruns, and we spent time as a family until, you know, the bell rang about 15 minutes later. And it was Katarina's uh, fastest delivery they'd ever done. I, I don't know if they uh, if they sensed any tension during my call. Either way, I got my pizza. Um, and I get inside, and the kids are excited because they love pizza. And I love pizza, too. So I get the plates. I serve up a slice. I give it to my daughter. I serve up a second slice. I give it to my son. And I'm serving the third slice. And I look over to the living room, and... I see my wife and I see my parents and I could see the disappointment in their eyes. I felt tension. I felt anger. I felt concern. And then I looked over at the kids table and I saw them laughing, smiling. And I just wanted more of that. So much more of that. And I know that oatmeal doesn't do that. But pizza doesn't do this much of that. They were laughing way too much. So finally, I'm like, kids, what what are y'all laughing at? And I walk over to them and they point to the pizza box. And I look at the box and it says in marker pepperoni pizza, quote unquote, all over that shit. With extra effing cheese. Smiley face. And I. <laughs> I appreciated Vito's attention to detail. And I looked over at my wife. And I asked her to come over. And I said hey baby. Uh, I got you a slice. Um, but before you eat. Would you mind helping me. With my shots. Um, so I could have some oatmeal. And she hugged me, and and I looked over at my parents, and I tried to picture what it must have been like to feel like you're going to lose someone during the pandemic, to know that you can't see them because of what was going on and I thought about what that week was like in the hospital not understanding why everyone was so worried and why I wasn't being allowed to see people and how lonely it felt spending six days where the only time I was allowed to talk to them was through text And I compared that to this room and I saw how awesome it was to be hugging Gabby and spending time with my parents and just hearing my kids laugh. And I can't say that I'll ever love oatmeal, but if oatmeal makes it possible for me to have this more often, then 
I gotta say I love what oatmeal can do for me. That was Gastor Almonte. Gastor is a stand-up comedian, storyteller, and writer. He's appeared on Comedy Central's This Is Not Happening, PBS, and Vice. His debut special, Immigrant Maid, can be seen on Amazon Prime, and his debut album of the same name debuted at number one on iTunes, Google Play, and Amazon. His appearance on World Channel's Stories from the Stage was a 2020 Webby Award winner, and he is, of course, a senior producer at Story Glider, we're very proud to say. Before we move on to our interview segment, I want to let everyone know that after next week, we will have concluded our first Stories of COVID-19 series. To give everyone a break for a while, we're going to air some bonus episodes with non-COVID-related stories for a few months. This includes a three-part series on mental health produced and hosted by one of our senior producers, Misha Gajewski, but also one-off stories that we're finding through our live shows, our slams, and our workshops. We believe it is so important for us to be documenting the stories of this time during the pandemic, and we've heard from many of you that you find listening to them cathartic and that they make you feel connected to others' experiences. However, we have also heard from several of you that you'd like to take a break from COVID content right now, and we hear you. So while I definitely recommend sticking around to listen to the rest of the series, next week's episode, for example, is maybe my favorite of the whole series. I don't know if I'm supposed to have favorites, but <laughs> if if I am, it would be this final episode. So while I definitely recommend sticking around for that, you can look forward to stories about things like sharks and bird migration and temporary blindness and lightning strikes and math. You know, the kind of stuff that you've come to expect from Story Collider over the years. We'll continue uh, bringing you those stories for the next couple of months. And with all of that said, you can, of course, always find non-COVID-related science stories at our near-weekly online live shows. Check out storyclider.org for more information about those. Tonight, we have a story slam hosted by the one and only Gastor Almonte, whose story you just heard. And next week, we have a show that will feature stories from the Boston area, hosted by our Boston team. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When we think about the clarity that this pandemic has brought, one of the most significant and glaring aspects of this is the clarity that it's brought to conversations about race. Black, Latino, and indigenous people are five times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID, according to the CDC. Black people comprise a quarter of the deaths as a result of COVID, even though they're 13% of the population. This past November, the American Medical Association finally came out and made the historic statement that racism is a threat to public health. And last month, we witnessed the death of Dr. Susan Moore after her suffering was ignored by her fellow physicians. Structural racism in our society was apparent before, and now it's practically slapping us in the face. So I was really interested to talk to one of our previous storytellers from our Decisions episode, Mati Lachwayo Davis, about this more in-depth last month. 
As you may remember, Monty is an infectious diseases doctor who studies the impact of COVID-19 on marginalized populations. Welcome, Dr. Monty Hlachwayo Davis. Thank you so much for having me, Erin. So I'm really excited to talk to you about this issue that's been on my mind for a while, and it's this idea that COVID, the pandemic, has sort of thrown into stark relief all of this systemic inequality that was already there. Uh, Some people are just now noticing it for the first time. I know that for you, it's been a big focus for a long time. So what is it like now to see that growing awareness on this topic that's that's been really crucial for you for a while? Let me say that I feel like I came late to the party too. I, let me acknowledge that I feel like there are community partners and community organizations that have been doing this work for years and years and years, unseen, unheard, without funding, without support, um, and who really have gained the trust of the public. Um, I humbly come to this now as a second year faculty member at you know uh, the Washington University School of Medicine, and I also have a joint appointment at the John Cochran VA Medical Center, and also um, in my work prior to that as a trainee. So as you know, the medicine walk is long, resident medical student, resident and fellow. Um, but I'll tell you that when this when it's first when people first started talking about the inequities that we're seeing with COVID and specifically that it disproportionately affects black and brown communities um, to devastating degrees, devastatingly higher magnitudes than in white communities. And I'm talking both in illness, but also in death. Um, I'll be honest with you, I was annoyed because there was this sort of, you know, self-righteous shock and, you know, people acting like this was new. And I, you know, I'm just kind of looking around like, people who do disparities work must want to like just pull their eyes out at this point because they've been doing this work for literally decades and bringing these inequities to light in multitudes, in, in, in multiple areas, whether it's heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, cancers, you know, we see this with sickle cell. And so it's not the disease that's the issue. This is a systemic issue. Okay, it's a it's it, it it comes down to systemic and institutional um, and structural racism. It comes down to a deep rooted and well documented history of atrocities against Black and Brown communities dating all the way back to slavery, with multiple other examples um, of times when Black people were experimented experimented upon or quite rank, frankly, in the, in the example of Tuskegee or Henrietta Lacks lied to, um, you know, um, not informed and basically taken advantage of and um, in a way that has borne a deep, deep mistrust in black and brown communities um, that also adds to the issue. And so this is much more than a disease that popped up and happened to shine light on this for the first time. This is a longstanding issue. And so for me, it really changed the way that I saw my work. Um, As a Black woman myself, and in a year where I'm married to a Black man, and there were multiple, you know, instances of police brutality against young, of Black men and women, um, I have two young children, a four-year-old and a baby. I had this year in the middle of the pandemic in May. 
Um, as our listeners heard on a previous episode, yes, right here. Uh, the you know this you know I have to credit and and thank you because you guys were the first ones to to see me and give me a platform. Um, and for now, I'll always be appreciative because it really helped me to find my voice. When now I won't shut up. I'm sure a lot of people wish I would. Uh, <laughs> so it was frustration at first because it's like, come on, guys, this is not new. You know, this is not this is not something that just popped up. But then it became um, a battle cry of sorts for me and for many others. It was important for me to use my platform and to use my intersectionality as a black woman and an immigrant, um, but to represent, because we do know representation matters and being able to see an infectious diseases expert, a public health expert, a researcher who is also these three very real and beautiful things. Um, and I knew that that would be important, not only for my community, but for all communities to sort of see that um, and embrace that and find and find that in a way that I hope is accessible, that is clear and meets people where they need to be met. Um, so that was the importance of the moment to me. Um, and and the way that I thought it was important to do that is by acknowledging those community partners I spoke to you about right at the beginning of this rant of mine um, and working with them because trust, the trust, the type of trust and, and, and quite frankly, mistrust I spoke about is not something that can be overturned overnight. It cannot be accomplished by sort of last ditch efforts. And so I think it's really important to work with them alongside them and ensure they have the funding and the policy to really be able to do the work that we critically need them to do. Absolutely. Um, some examples of this inequity as a result of COVID uh, that you reference in your Newsweek article, that Black, Latino, and Indigenous people are five times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID, according to the CDC. Uh, black people comprise a quarter of the deaths as a result of COVID, even though they're 13% of the population. Uh, how are you seeing this inequity manifest during COVID? I know that you've mentioned there are fewer vaccine volunteers from communities of color, for example. Yeah. So, I mean, we're seeing black and brown communities just in general not want to access the healthcare se sector in, in really any way um, because of fear, um, because of mistrust. Um, importantly, as we've now worked our way up to a vaccine that in many ways has surpassed the, our expectations in the medical and scientific community that requires uh, representation and studies. And there's again, a long documented history of black and brown communities being underrepresented in these studies because they don't trust them. They believe they are guinea pigs. They believe that, you know, these studies are not done with good intentions towards them and their communities and their families. And so they're underrepresented. You know, I will give credit to Moderna, who at least tried to slow down their um, recruitment efforts to make sure they had more representation from the Black community. They were able to get to 10%. It's not perfect, but it's better than where they were in the beginning, which was woefully under 10%. Mm. Um, but it's reflective of that, right? That mistrust that's never been dealt with right? Just baseline acknowledgements from the institutions that have 
been responsible for this historically. Just because you don't think you're doing it now, it doesn't mean it doesn't, it hasn't impacted the way communities function to this day. And so acknowledging and apologizing um, and hearing people and then being thoughtful about how you provide them with information, I think is key. And so leading up to a vaccine, you know, the first COVID vaccines were given out in the United States yesterday, a historical moment um, in our country. Um, But there's two things that I'm very worried about. The first is this idea of vaccine hesitancy um, because of this mistrust and people not wanting to take the vaccine. There was a survey about a month ago that said, you know, 47% of Americans did not want to take the vaccine. That number was 67% in Black communities. Um, That's a staggering number. Mm -hmm. And I credit that to this vaccine hesitancy. But there's a lot of us, too, that get frustrated when the only focus is on vaccine hesitancy because there are people in the Black community that want this vaccine. They do. They really want to take it. I'm one of them. I have friends who are for them. We're waiting with bated breath for the day we get the email or a notification or you know, someone letting us know it's our turn. And let me be clear, I gladly step aside so that those who have uh, other risk factors like being older or who have, um, d- you know, who have who have uh, health conditions that put them at greater risk like heart and, and, and lung disease or who come from backgrounds and communities where access would be an issue, I'm gladly wait my turn, um, even as a healthcare worker. But I just say that to say, I'm ex- you know, I want this. You know, I've made that decision. I've, I've reviewed the data. And for me and my family, this is where we're at with it. But my second concern outside of vaccine hesitancy is once again, the communities that need it most won't be able to do it. We have done a lot of research over the summer. We know exactly which zip codes, for example, in our region are most effective. So my question is, for the leaders who are responsible for the dissemination efforts, is there a transparent distribution and allocation process? Will we be able to see it? Will there be checks and balances? Um, And I don't want to put this on local government. Local government is stretched, and, and I believe at least in our city and county, really do the best they can. This is a top-down approach that needs to come down from the highest levels of government, and they need to advocate for standardized approaches to make sure access isn't an issue. So really, when you ask me which ways have I seen this manifest, it's in two ways, vaccine hesitancy, but also now um a continued concern around access for black and brown communities um, for the healthcare that they need and may want and may be seeking and specifically for these vaccines if they do choose to, to get them. Yeah. And I think it's important also to acknowledge as you have in your response that these black and brown communities who are hesitant to get the vaccine, that's different from what we usually think of as anti-vaxxers, the Jenny McCarthy mm-hmm. mold of anti-vaxxers. Mm-hmm. And they have really legitimate historical, <laughs> recently historical reasons for mm-hmm. mistrust for the scientific community. How can, how can we, how can scientists, how can the government, how can the medical community, how can we better reach these communities? I liked in your Newsweek article, for example, that you said pamphlets aren't enough. We need to build relationships. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, you know, one point of frustration for me is historically seeing that a lot of time and effort and money is put into developing, you know, research trials and protocols 
And then right at the end, there's this thought about, well, how are we going to engage the community and what are some last ditch efforts to make sure that they're engaged? And I and I don't think that that shows a genuine concern around long term and sustainable change. Um, and so what I believe needs to happen is, number one, that we engage implementation and dissemination science scientists, people who have built their lives and their careers around public health and community engagement and the um, support of, 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 of marginalized populations of whom, you know, black and brown communities are the most prominent to be involved from the inception, from the beginning of the development of these trials and that funds are allocated just like they would to the basic and clinical research funds are allocated to the community engagement portions and being really thoughtful um, and sincere about that. You know, my mentor, Dr. Elvin Gang, who's the head of the um, Center for Implementation and Dissemination Science, was given the opportunity to um, lead a research, uh, a research effort at the beginning of the summer around COVID testing. And that would have given us um, I, a, a much more accurate idea about the prevalence of COVID in the county uh, and by extension in our region. And it was important to him to bring people like myself on to be also thoughtful about providing resources to those who need them, to actually building a protocol in, in the same way we were building a protocol around the testing aspect of it to make sure um, we were supporting people and not just coming in and using them for our purposes, no matter how noble we think those pur purposes are, but also saying we are here to provide you with the, the, the resources that are important in keeping you and your families safe and alive. Um, those sort of initiatives, I think, are key. I think we've tried to do them. I think some of the methods that we've used have been antiquated, and I think money and funds should be allocated to being innovative around that, just like we push people to be innovative around you know, traditional research methods. Um, the, the other thing I was speaking to was that, again, those last-ditch efforts, whether they be pamphlets or suddenly, you know, doing TV interviews, you know, a couple of weeks before things are about to go, is to be thoughtful about trust and how to bridge trust. And just like you would never trust someone, you know, if I said to you, hey, Aaron, I'm going to introduce you to someone and I would like you to be best friends by the time you finish talking to them, that's so unrealistic and so disingenuous, right? Um, but if I wanted to partner with you and I reached out to someone that I know you trust well and was willing to work with you guys and have that person as sort of um, someone who was there to um, act as a bridge, I think that's a much more sustainable model. And that's exactly what community partnerships and organizations are. But I believe that they too have been abused in the past and are just expected to do this work. Um, they're not provided adequate support for it. They're not backed by policy so that they can really have the power to enact the things that they need to. And so that's why, you know, I use my platform to talk about the need for that funding and that policy so that they can do the work they need to do because they have earned the trust of the communities that they've served for so long. Now, we heard a little bit about this in your story, but what has it been like being a Black doctor during COVID, specializing in infectious diseases, <laughs> also having a baby this year? <laughs> and then, as you said, doing your best to use your platform to speak out about this. It's been wild. For a lot of people, the privilege that they have is being able to 
separate their professional and personal lives mm. um, and have the luxury to, you know, to sort of do the things that they think are interesting in a vacuum. That went out the window for me this year, right? I was, I am the only black um, female doctor on the ground in my department. Um, I was the only pregnant person in my department um, at the beginning of this pandemic, and I'm an infectious disease specialist. And then I'm watching horrible footage around, you know, black and brown folks, you know, enduring trauma after trauma, murders um, and police brutality. It was a lot. Right. And I didn't have the luxury anymore of separating personal and professional. You know, when I speak in this capacity, it's very much wearing the hat of an infectious diseases expert and, you know, a public health expert. And um, but it's it's also very personal. I am black, too. Right. I remember, you know, and you heard this in my story collider, being at my doctor's interview on, you know, Black Maternal um, and Fetal Health Awareness Week, where, again, Black women are dying disproportionately due to childbirth. And I had tears in my eyes trying to advocate for myself with Dr. Philpott, who is an incredible and incredibly smart, but incredibly compassionate physician who told me he had my back and had it, you know, till the day Naniso was born. And honestly, since then. And so, you know, I don't have the luxury of being able to separate the personal and professional, and that can be really exhausting and a lot to bear. But having said that, mm -hmm. I have it so much better than many in my community, which is why, even though I would like to have the luxury of picking and choosing, you know, what I want, um, I now choose to also do this work and to dismantle the same systems that have oppressed me and people who look like me for years, not because I'm obligated to do it, um, and certainly not to satisfy the desires of other people who'd like to check a box in that regards, but because I'm passionate about it and it's important to me and I feel good about what I'm doing for the first time in a long time, every night I go to sleep, and I feel like I am making, as this is like the corniest thing you can say, but it's really true. I, I feel like I'm making the world a better place for my babies. You know what I mean? And so when I'm playing with them at home and they're giggling at me and right. are completely oblivious to the dumpster fire around them, I really feel good that mommy is doing <laughs> something to help, you know, and, to, and, and it's, it's funny, you know, self quarantine and the stay at home orders and, and being mindful about social distancing has been really tough, right? You know, losing that, that community and that uh, fellowship. But I felt safe because I can protect my babies in this house, you know, or so you, 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 you convince yourself you can. There's so much fear hmm. in the way that the world looks right now in me sending my kids out and me not being near them all day. And so there may be a desperate, albeit unrealistic in some ways, effort to just, when I get to the point where I'm okay dropping them off at school and dropping them off at playgrounds, feel like the community that I now trust with my family is a safer place and a place that will treat them first with kindness and compassion and dignity and respect and that I'm not always holding my heart in my hands, you know, worried about what or who may hurt them. And that's sad, but it's really, it's really true. You know what I mean? So, you know, that's my violin story about 
like, what this has been like, but it's been, I mean, in a word, it's been wild. That is beautifully put. It's been wild, yeah. but it's also been very freeing. I wear my fro out unapologetically. I wear African prints on screen, even though people are like, you should only wear monotone colors. You know, <laughs> I'm very unapologetic about who I am and, and what that looks like. And overwhelmingly that's been supported. And so it makes the few instances of ignorant um, hate that I've done. Thank you so much for chatting with us, Madi. Storyclutter is so grateful to Mati for sharing her knowledge and to Gastor for sharing his story. Storyclutter is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast series is produced by me, Erin Barker, with assistance from Storyclutter's Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Storyclutter's board, our Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and our interim executive director, Leslie Griesbach-Schultz, without whom none of this would be possible. The story featured in the first part of this episode was produced by Lily B. The theme music is by Eva Gertz of the Fulton Street Music Group. Stay tuned for two more stories in part two of Clarity on Monday. Until then, this is Story Collider signing off. Stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, love each other. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.